Happy Friday, Donuts. Welcome to another episode of Fried Dough, your weekly fix of true crime. I'm your girl, Gina, and I am very excited to have you here with me today. If you're new to the Fried Dough community, welcome. We are a group of true crime enthusiasts who come together to explore the most fascinating cases out there. And to my regular Donuts, thank you for your continued support and loyalty. I really do appreciate it. But before we jump into today's story, I want to remind you to follow this podcast and review it on whatever podcast platform you're listening to me on right now and join our community on Instagram at Friday Podcast. And also you can reach out with your case suggestions, feedback, whatever you want to talk about at Friday at myyahoo.com. And as always, I want to remind listeners that the stories that I cover on this podcast may be difficult to hear. However, it is very important to shine a light on these cases and remember the victims who were affected. This is Fried Doe True Crime Podcast, and this is Skidmore Part 3, The Horrific Beating and Murder of Wendy Gillenwater and Raymond Gunn, a dark chapter in in Maryville history, 1931. All right, Donuts, the first story that we're going to talk about is Wendy Gillowater. Wendy Gillowater was born January 8th, 1975 in Fairfax, Missouri. I couldn't find anything personally about Wendy Gillowater. There's really nothing. Wendy Gillowater was a small town girl in Skidmore, Missouri, and so was her husband. Whenever you Google her name, the first thing that pops up is October 16th, year 2000, when the sheriff's department got a call that there was a female lying in the backyard of a home and that she was non-responsive. So Sheriff Espy got the call and he went over to the address of 406 Elm Street. He said when he got to the address, there indeed was a young woman laying face down in the grass on the back side of the house. Now, if I didn't put it in Bobby Joe's episode, I'm not exactly sure, but Bobby Joe's address was 403 Elm Street. So they were actually next door neighbors. Greg brutalized her for years. From early in their marriage, she was beaten up by him regularly. On the final day of her life, he started beating her and he just wouldn't stop. It's believed to be a methamphetamine rage. He was so high, he started beating her and he just didn't stop. He pulverized Wendy. He broke eight ribs on one side, six ribs on the other side. There were lacerations all over her face and arms. He beat her with a flashlight, then drug her body out of the house, down the stairs, and threw her in the backyard. He also saw a neighbor looking on from next door, but that didn't stop him, and no one was stepping in to help Wendy Gillenwater. For years, Greg was beating her. People had to know about it that lived nearby. In a small town like this, everybody knows everybody's business. Why didn't someone raise a red flag and say, this isn't right? 
Something's wrong here, but nobody did. The silence was literally deadly. On a couple of sources I saw, it said that he drug her down a couple of rural streets in Skidmore, Missouri, before she finally died. When she was gasping for her last breath of air, he took a bottle of Dawn dishwashing soap and poured it down her mouth. Sheriff Espy said it was a horrific scene. The coroner's report said that Wendy died of severe trauma to her chest, stomach, and she was literally stumped to death. When identifying Wendy's body, her mother was only able to identify her by the rings on her fingers. Greg Dragoo's grandmother said seeing Wendy in the hospital that day gave her nightmares. Why was she going visit when your grandson did it? I don't know. I don't know. During the aftermath, the Skidmore residents didn't want to talk about anything about Wendy and what happened. Greg Dragu, he received life in prison and Wendy Gillenwater. I just like saying her name. I don't want us to forget about it. Wendy is buried in Hillcrest Cemetery in Skidmore, Missouri in the year 2000. That's the same cemetery that Bobby Joe was buried in four years later in 2004. What's up, Donuts? As promised, this is episode number two, Raymond Gunn, a dark chapter in Skidmore, Missouri history. Something that they try hard to forget about. In late 1930, a terrible event occurred in Maryville, an event that would be endlessly cited to those who agreed that what happened in Skidmore some 50 years later was a work of a vigilante town. Velma Coulter was a 19-year-old attractive school teacher at the small Garrett schoolhouse about three miles southwest from Maryville. As a custom, she boarded with the farm family and walked the half a mile to and from school every day. She usually stayed after school to sweep the floors, empty the trash, and erase the board before going home. She continued this routine even after reporting some suspicious happenings around the school and telling friends that she was afraid. On the night of December 16, 1930, she never came home by dark, but her host family really didn't think nothing of it because she, they knew she stayed after school every day. When the father of the family finally went up to the school to investigate, he found her brutally beaten body and stabbed to death. Within three days, the police picked up Raymond Gunn. Raymond Gunn was a 27-year-old man from Maryville. The only reason to suspect Raymond initially was he was previously convicted for assaulting a white college girl for which he had served his four years in prison. The student claimed that Mr. Gunn stuck his thumbs in her mouth to keep her from screaming. Mr. Gunn never confessed to this crime, and he claimed that he had been beaten while in custody. He was released January 28, 1928. Oh, did I forget? Mr. Gunn was a black man, the only black man in town. 
After eight hours of interrogation by three detectives, Mr. Gunn confessed. The police claimed they corroborated his confession with other evidence. They put Mr. Gunn in protective custody and sent him to St. Joseph's jail. But a crowd gathered outside of the jailhouse, so they had to move him from St. Joseph Jail to Kansas City Jail, where he remained until his arraignment on January 12, 1931. After that, the schoolhouse became a local attraction on Sunday afternoon. They would form lines to walk through the crime scene. A 16-year-old boy cringed when he stepped on some dry blood on a wood floor and it crackled under his foot. The press and local authorities predicted that mob violence would occur when Mr. Gunn was brought back to Maryville for arraignment. The National Guard was put on alert, but never called to action. People started showing up at the courthouse on Sunday afternoon. By Monday morning, January 12th, more than 700 people were gathered around the courthouse in 20-degree weather. A car pulled up. A sheriff, a deputy, and Mr. Gunn got out of the car. However, Mr. Gunn never made it to the courthouse doors. The crowd just went up and took Mr. Gunn from the sheriff. They led him through a field, barefoot and shirtless, on the end of a seven-foot chain and led him to the schoolhouse. Authorities made no attempt to intervene. It was well organized. About 25 men walked in a circle around Mr. Gunn as they walked through the field. Other men drove cars to the schoolhouse so they can get there before, and they started removing furniture and valuables, including deaths, from the school. By the time Mr. Gunn and his captors made it to the school, an estimated 3,000 people had assembled, and a few were shouting, to hell with the law. When they arrived, Mr. Gunn was taken inside of the schoolhouse where they allegedly said that he confessed to his captors again. While some men pushed and pulled Mr. Gunn up a makeshift ladder onto the roof of the school, other men were tearing shingles off of the roof and punched holes in it. Once Mr. Gunn was on top of the roof, he was told to spread eagle himself on the crossbeam and his legs were stuck through the holes dangling inside of the school. One man looped a chain around Mr. Gunn's body and threw his legs and drew it tightly. Others doused the roof with gasoline. Several people shouted, want some water? And that was a reference from a published report that Velma Coulter had begged her killer for a glass of water just before she died. Who reported that? How would you know that that's what she said right before she died, unless you was the killer? Let's move on. They left Mr. Gunn on the roof, and then they set it on fire. In a few minutes, the flame and a dark cloud of smoke covered the figure on the roof, and I have a picture of that, and I will post it on the Instagram. The blistering heat became more intense, and soon his torso was splotched with white patches of exposed flesh his hair burned like a torch for a moment and then his head sagged his body took an appearance of a mummy mr gunn screamed once in agony he waved his arms twice outward disparagingly he was conscious for perhaps 10 to 15 minutes but within a half an hour from the time the flames reached him he was dead the flesh was burning from the top of his head 
in his neck exposing the white skull. When the fire had died, souvenir hunters supposedly combed through the ashes for bones and teeth. And we all know that this is true. The Maryville Daily Forum reported the next day that, quote, the nigger murderer had been burned to death by mob. And just FYI, if y'all can't tell from my voice, I am a sister. And in a subsequent editorial, the paper condemned the burning and expressed fear that Maryville would become forever identified as the place where they burn the nigger. The prosecuting attorney called the event a regrettable incident. And the sheriff, who was in bed with a sore shoulder, oh, poor baby, he said he was very sorry that it happened and he hated it very much. Aww. Mr. Gunn's mother says she wanted to go back to the scene and search around to see if she could find something that could be buried as a body. A few men from Skidmore attended the burning and can recall it very vividly. However, 50 years later, no one had ever been implicated in any way. So y'all know what this was. Y'all know what it is about this whole story and what it really was. We're not going into that right now. What we're going into is the logic of this whole situation. 3,000 people all had the same thought about taking a man to the school, taking out the desk and chairs and furniture and things like that, burn the school. Now where your kids going to go to school at? Now they got to go to school all the way on the other side of town because they didn't build another school there. They had to go to school to an, at another county. It's 1931. They not about to build another school that fast. And actually, they never build a school in that place again. They just put up a plaque, and they never build a school on that land. Mob thinking is never good thinking. So in 1881, two brothers were accused of killing their father, Dr. Perry H. Tolbert. They were found guilty and were sentenced to death. That was the first murder recorded in Skidmore history. In 1884, a guy named Omaha Charlie was accused of shooting this man, Herbert Creamer, and he was arrested. A mob of 50 men or more, masked men, they actually stormed the jailhouse with the sheriff, James Anderson, and his deputy, which was Jack Anderson, they fought the mob off by gunshot. Uh, you know, they were shooting at each other. The mob overpowered them and dragged Charlie from his cell, and they took him to the bridge on 4th and Water Street, and they hung him. The sheriff and the deputy found Charlie one hour later. This was Charlie's first crime. October 1972, a whole family was murdered in their home, in their beds, by a 15-year-old boy named Benedict Kemper, or Benny for short. He cut the phone line. He snuck into their basement. He waited until the whole family went to sleep, and then he went upstairs, and he killed them and shot them one at a time. Marion, the father, Kathleen, the mother, William, the son, and Benny's classmate, and Helen Ann, the youngest daughter, with a 22 bolt action rifle. The only survivor of that family was Sue, and that's only because she was the oldest and she was away at college. The next day when the school bus came to the family's house to pick up the two little ones, Benny told the school bus driver that, quote, 
they won't be coming to school today. Benny was sentenced to four consecutive 45-year sentences, and in addition, he was given six years for trying to escape. In 1985, he was denied parole. His next parole hearing is 2026. Yes, Donuts, he's still alive. If y'all want me to research this story a little bit more, let me know because that's all the information that I have. This, this town, I don't know. These are the descendants of these people who live there today, the people who saw Brandon walk off or did something to Brandon. These are the descendants that refused to help Wendy when she was being beaten. It's horrible. I be having mixed feelings about this town. Every time I go back and forth and read a different story, I have a different feeling about this town. I just don't know. But the last episode of this whole segment is coming next Friday. It's going to be a big episode. All right, Donuts, stay safe, stay vigilant, and always, always, always trust your instinct.